uh, remix. Stop. What up, what up, man, it's a remix, it's your boy, Eddie Trump Gordon, UFC Ultimate Fighter Champ. Yeah, let me tell you something, your station is bananas, inspiring to, to try to be like you, man. Keep doing what you do, I love it, much love. As I said from the beginning, from the first time I saw your account, I said you're doing something that nobody else is doing in medicine, and by the heavens, you must continue. Because you are showing the young generation what is possible. You must continue. Sim Osgood on Medicine Remix. Sim Osgood, one reason he went to the Pro Bowl as a special teams guy are plays like that. He's able to strip it and then it stays in bounds. He takes a seat, crosses his legs. No problem, guys. Go to work. Medicine Remix is a great station because you guys just cover the full gamut of the human persona, the human flight. You guys send out prescriptions of life. What I love about you guys show Medicine Remix is the fact that you guys will take a hip-hop quote, put it into a prescription formula because people need to know how to live. Uh, Artwork in the form of rap, hip-hop, sort of like now with Pfizer and we're telling you, these could be your side effects. If you don't check yourself, it's true. you will wreck yourself. You will. <laughs> hey guys, I just wanted to let you know I'm hanging out with someone from Apple and they said that they listened to your station and loved it. Just wanted to give you that feedback. That's the remix fam. Scary me. remix. Next big thing, get on it now. Appreciate that, brother. Make the most of today. Thank you for listening. You're listening to Medicine Remix. Bye. Support for today's Medicine Remix show comes from Climatap, Bold and Allergy. Has the congestion fighting power to relieve stuffy fixed mindsets and runny excuses. This formula also provides relief for your child's whining and bitching whenever they encounter difficulties in life. And it also comes in a great grape flavor that kids love. Climatap, grow your mindset to put your head down and climb. Available wherever good strategies are sold. Now, back to remixing medicine on Medicine Remix. What it do, Remix Crew? It's your favorite rapper turned doctor, Reach the MCMD. And it's your favorite anchor station turned podcast, Medicine Remixed. And boy, do we have an episode for you today. We have another installment of our Doctormentaries interview series where we talk to doctors from various specialties in medicine that vibe with the Medicine Remix culture. Our guest for today's episode is Dr. Mike Natter, who is currently in his internal medicine residency at NYU Langone Medical Center, and he plans to pursue a fellowship in endocrinology after he's done. Many people in the medical community who are also on Instagram definitely know Mike Natter's name and his drawings, which have gained a tremendous following for obvious reasons. This was a very exciting interview for me personally because I've been a fan of Mike's work for a minute now. And even with his unbelievably crazy work hours as an intern, which I can attest to and in fact am actively trying to forget about, and even with those unbelievably busy work hours with residency and all the other commitments 
he has in the art world. We're so grateful that he agreed to do this documentary interview. I got so much value out of this conversation. I think you guys and gals will as well. If you listen to our interview with Dr. Catherine Coe, aka Doc Ambidexter, which still stands as our most listened to episode of Medicine Remix to date, by the way. So if you listen to that and loved it, then you will absolutely love this conversation as well. Mike is a fascinating human. This interview is for anyone told he or she couldn't be something or couldn't be more than one thing. It's for anyone struggling to choose between art and science, between being an artist or a scientist, because guess what? The punchline is you can do both. Mike Natter is proof and the dude is the straight truth pumped for y'all to listen to this episode so without further ado here's the latest documentaries with mike natter only on medicine remixed hello mike hey dude this is so exciting because i'm a huge huge fan been following you for a minute so uh how's intern year in the big city going so far uh you know it's all right it's uh it's good it's very humbling it's um it's struggle though i think intern year anywhere is struggle but uh, Mm -hmm. it's been a lot yeah i think is this year the first year that they're doing the work hours a little bit different it used to be you can only do like 16 hours so is that different this year that's correct yeah of course when i graduated was when the uh, acgme rolled out back so right right it's right. like the perfect timing oh. so yeah essentially there was a restriction on intern work hours where you weren't allowed to be in the hospital for more than 16 hours in a row uh. and that got rolled back the move was put into place by the accreditation council for graduate medical education the group that sets the rules for residents it will impact hundreds of teaching hospitals across the u.s where residents are employed wow so we do on a couple of our rotations we'll do like the 28 hour shifts it's like 24 plus four basically like you're there the whole day and you, you round and sign out. So it ends up being closer to 28 hours. What? And it's rough. It's definitely yeah. rough. But I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, I, I obviously don't enjoy it, but the second and third year residents have to do it as well. And that was never part yeah. of the, the whole package. So the fact that they have to do it, it was just a matter of time until I had to do it anyway. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of how I looked at it too. It's weird. I guess it depends on where you are, like which program, just as far as policing work hours in the first place. Cause I was like always over the 16, you know, as an intern, right. but there's just a big difference though between doing even close to 24 hours and then just doing, you know, 28, 30, 36. I think 48 might have been my record oh, God. as far as just oh my number God. of hours like in a row. And it's just like, how is this shit safe? It's nah. terrible. It's not only yeah. is it not safe, but it's just like, it's so ironic to me how this whole concept of healthcare and trying to train to help others become healthy is like truly the most unhealthy thing that we can do to ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. It shouldn't have yeah. to be like that. The whole thing is very backwards in my mind. Totally, man. And it's exactly as you said. It's just so ironic. You know, before starting medical school, I was just so disciplined about diet, exercise, and all the things that you're supposed to do to be healthy, basically. And right. ironically, when I started this journey is when I just progressively got less and less healthy, which includes 
sleep hygiene. There's so much data out there showing that you're more impaired when you're sleep deprived than when your blood alcohol level is over the legal limit. This is actual data that exists out there. We're supposed to be practicing evidence-based medicine, but yet it's like, yeah, that doesn't apply to doctors at all because they're not human beings. I totally agree. It's a mess. The whole thing's a mess. I I don't think it was well constructed whatsoever. I think, unfortunately, it's one of those things where it's almost impossible to change because once the people are empowered to implement change they've already been past that phase and so then it's you know more yeah. difficult for someone to want to then go back and, and make this make a change right so i guess with that being said i know you're a super busy guy even outside of how busy we just described uh your life just now but huh. i really appreciate you doing this so what's the mike natter origin story let's stick with like the, the comic <laughs> book cartoon oh uh, i love it <laughs> the origin story that's funny so i guess the way I like to describe it is I, I kind of, um, I feel very much like an imposter. I feel like I, I identify and associate much more as kind of the outsider, the artist who um, was never really much of a math and science kid. And in fact, growing through you know middle school and high school, I struggled with math and science very much so to the point where I was told by teachers, friends, parents, so on, you know, like you're just not very, you're not a math person. You're not a numbers guy. I was fine with that. I was very accepting of that. I never ever projected myself being being in a math science career. I never thought I'd study it beyond high school. So I kind of took a lot of stock in the humanities and I was an artist and I like to write, I like to read. So that was kind of never something that brought me down, but it's just something I kind of accepted at face value. So I actually was diagnosed with type one diabetes at age nine. I had this kind of interesting fascination with medicine and this kind of awe of the human physiology that was taking place that was now kind of my conscious responsibility of maintaining blood glucose levels which you kind of gain this appreciation for the body where it's like, wow, this was kind of being taken care of and now I realize how intricate and how amazing this is. So I, I was fascinated by it, wow. but I never thought I could actually go into it. So I went on to study art at Skidmore College. Yeah. And while I was studying art, I took up an interest in the neuropsychology and the brain. And so I took a few classes and it was very safe because I was able to not take any of the math and science classes. I could just kind of take these neuroscience classes. Right. And I loved it. Woo. And Skidmore was the kind of place where if you just showed a little bit of interest, the professors kind of knew your name. Everybody knows your name. I mean, they take out and get a beer and you talk about it and they take you into their wing. So then I ended up doing a little bit of research with a mentor of mine, uh, Dr. Flip Phillips. And he kind of pushed me into taking science a little bit more seriously and saying that, you know, I, I could very much do it. Talk to him. And I gained a bit of an academic confidence in myself. And it wasn't until I finished uh, undergrad when I realized I really want to be a, a doctor. I really want to go into endocrinology. I want to do this. So I graduated. I moved back home to New York City. I did a post-bac pre-medical program. I worked for a little bit. And then I was really fortunate enough to get into Jefferson Medical College in Philly. Wow. You're preaching to the choir as far as not really feeling like you were good at science and math earlier on. I feel like those were things that I definitely had to work harder at, but because I grew up Indian to immigrant parents, it's like, no, 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 like, you're gonna be a doctor. I don't become a doctor. So figure out how to, how to like, 
science and math and be good at it. Yeah, I'm but I was always, you know, much better at music and history and English yeah, yeah, yeah. and things like that. I grew up outside of New York City in Queens and Long Island, yeah, yeah. so not too far from you. But what was it like growing up in New York City and what, what were you like as a kid? That's a good question. I mean, it's so funny to me because I feel like when anyone grows up in their environment, that's like their environment, like that's home for them, you know? So it was like very normal for me. So yeah. I loved growing up in New York. I kind of took for granted the fact that I was growing up in this amazing city. I loved it. I, I was able to um, really be exposed to a lot of different types of people and a lot of different cultures. I was able to go to, you know, amazing museums and art galleries. So it just felt really um, enlightening and great. It would always be funny because you, you would like go watch like, you know, a movie and the quintessential kind of high school experience that was portrayed in the movie was, you know, like the football team and the homecoming and the campus. And we had none of that. Like there was no such thing as a football team. We didn't have a campus, you know, like we're on Upper West Side kind of thing. So yeah. that was always interesting to me. It's like how that was kind of the first insight to the fact that like what I was doing in terms of my adolescence was like very different from other people's experiences. Uh -huh. But I, I really loved it. And in some ways growing up in New York City is kind of like having a dog take a piss on you and like marking its territory and just makes you very like unfit to live in any other city. Because, <laughs> right, like, right. I barely know how to drive a car and like I'm used to like going out to go grocery shopping at two in the morning, like, you know, stuff yeah. like that. Yeah, no, that's real, man. And uh, do you have a particular memory of when you realized that you were into art or that you were an artist and you kind of uh, identified with that? It's funny. So I, I always felt like I um, had a foot in a lot of different kind of camps in terms of I never really boxed myself in because I never thought I was good enough at anything to kind mm -hmm. of um, label myself as one or the other. And I always kind of had this preconceived notion that to be an artist means like you had to, you know, be trying to pay your rent off of your paintings and like that. That kind of stuff but um growing up i mean art was so natural to me i was drawing ever since i was you know a kid and it just kind of stuck and i kind of feel like everyone draws like when you're in kindergarten you're given a box of crayons it's just kind of like everyone does it and i think it's unfortunate that people don't continue to do it and i think it's partially because our culture and our society doesn't necessarily value it as much as you know more of the hard sciences and the core curriculum in schools um but i feel like it kind of just stuck with me and it was very um cathartic in many ways and it was also something that just came very naturally. So I continued to do that. Um, but I, I never really called myself an artist. I was just a kid who liked to draw. And then I think it wasn't until I was in medical school that I was like, oh, no, no, I definitely much more identify as an artist than I do <laughs> a medical student. Right. Were your parents, are they artistic or either of them physicians? So my, my folks are wonderful people but there's actually no medicine in my family whatsoever. Um, my dad's a lawyer, my mom's a retired public school teacher. They're both like um, creative, sort of, like my mom. I'd say my mom is very creative, but no one was uh, like doing you know, painting, drawing, stuff like that. My mom does a lot of like needlepoint and crafty things. But my folks were, you know, like when I when I came back from Skidmore, I said, you know, listen, guys, I think I'm gonna go be a, a doctor. They said, uh, honey, I want you to get into medical school. <laughs> um, they were supportive, but they were also, I think, equally as surprised. Um, okay, this is news to me. Interesting. As you're saying that, you know, we've all heard of the kid that was told that they weren't artsy or creative. I think that's a big one early on. I don't know. Do you think everyone has? that gear to be creative? I, I definitely think so. I think everyone's born with it. I think what's unfortunate is that it's not, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's not, the, the flames aren't stoked. They're they're kind of uh, stifled. I think, you know, there's this pressure to be, the idea of being successful means mm -hmm. um, making money and having a title and having driving a nice car.
guitar and I think going the art route is very difficult to do that. Very few people can do that. And so when I was actually at Skidmore and I was taking my art classes, I was by no means at the top of the class. If anything, I was at the bottom. These kids were so talented. So mm -hmm. I kind of had this, this realization that to be successful in the art world or to do well in the art world, especially in fine art, you need to be doing one of two things or both of them at the same time. And that is you need to be so insanely talented that you actually set yourself apart, which I certainly was not. And or you needed to be doing something that was so different, like your concept had to be very different or new or made you think differently. And I was drawing naked ladies for the most part, so I was not doing that either. So I um, I was never kind of saw myself going forward as a fine artist. It was something I just really identified with and liked and loved, but it wasn't something that I saw myself kind of doing. But I think people are born with that. I think people have a, a natural inclination towards creativity. Yeah, no, 100%. Like, I, I almost wonder if you at some point had the reverse happen to you where people were like, you're not the science and numbers guy, like you said. Do you have like a memory of early on somebody telling you or making you feel like science and math is not my thing. Oh yeah, very vivid memories. I can, there are numerous, numerous stories starting from this as early as grammar school. They would put me in like the remedial math class and it wasn't so much as a being reprimanded, it was more of like, a, it's okay, honey, like you're just not a math kid or you're just not good at this or you're not good at that. And I was very accepting of it. And then it became a little bit more harsh, you know, like I think applying to medical school was an extreme, it really kind of um, disgusted me in many Anyways, how little effort was being put into looking at the applicants for who they were and why they were going into medicine, how much more was being put on these very two-dimensional uh, abstract numbers of MCATs and GPAs and these types of things that I didn't think reflected whatsoever the kind of doctor this person would be. It was... Uh it was upsetting. I, I've had deans of medical schools after talking with them, telling them what my numbers were, tell me flat out, just based on my numbers, there's no way I'd even you know have a chance. And I had uh, I, I took a, an MCAT course with this guy, and I'll never forget. He called me the day before my MCAT, and was like, "I just took a look at your numbers and like your trajectory." And he's like, "You can't take the MCAT tomorrow. There's no way you're gonna get into medical school. Well, you should." What you know, the yeah. fuck? Yeah, I was I was uh, 27 years old, and I started to cry. It was like a miserable experience. I was like, "This is truly awful," and I will say that I'm very fortunate that I got into medical school because my numbers were not fantastic and I think a lot of what got me in was um, my art and my kind of different backstory and it was only Jefferson that kind of gave me that opportunity no other MD program gave me let alone uh, an interview uh, an acceptance so I'm very 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 grateful very fortunate and I still very much kind of have that imposter syndrome that mm -hmm. you know that that weight that I think I carry around that I still don't feel especially intelligent or good at math and science or good at medicine for that matter. But I know that my strengths also lie in other parts of medicine that are equally as important that I think a lot of people don't have. Yes, sir. A hundred percent, man. I guess if the Mike Natter now were to talk to the post-back Mike Natter or the Mike Natter in med school, how do you think that conversation would go? It's funny you say that. I have a, a memory um, that I'll never forget. It was in the summer between the years of my post-back and I was working um, at a medical office and I was just becoming so disillusioned with the process of getting to medical school and how stressful all of it was. And I wasn't even in school yet and I was stressed out with all this stuff. And I said to myself, if I make it through this, 
if I'm able to get into medical school and finish medical school and become a doctor and all these things, I never want to forget that struggle. I never want to forget how miserable and dehumanizing it was to try to get into this program. Mm -hmm. And I never want to lose who I am. I never want to, you know, I wouldn't trade numbers and good test scores for being humble and having a personality and, and like doing these for the right reasons. Major key alert. Because I was really, it was upsetting to see that. So I'm glad I had that moment with myself and I'm very fortunate that I was able to, to get through it all. But yeah, that I think that's what I think about if I were to like go back in time and talk to myself. It's, you know, don't forget where you came from. Don't ever, I've been extremely fortunate. I, I, I did well on some tests and was able to get into a great residency and, you know, things kind of started to fall into place and work out for me. But, you know, it, it was not easy. And to start thinking that, that these things are expected is, is a really dangerous dangerous road to go down. I couldn't agree more. So much of what you're saying is giving me goosebumps in a lot of those things that you mentioned just kind of you're the underdog. I don't want to see us win. And kind of tying that into the whole comic book narrative. I want to get into that a little bit just as far as when you started doing that as far as the cartooning and expressing some of your vulnerabilities and things like that through your art both visually and through words. I'm a big fan of the cartoons that you do. Oh, thanks so much. Yeah, I, I really appreciate it, dude. I um, so it was funny. So I, I've been drawing my whole life, but very rarely would I draw kind of with a dual purpose of like a didactic nature to try and like learn and, and retain stuff. It was kind of more of a um, an outlet or, you know, I would draw with the purpose of creating something beautiful or, or you know, making a statement. But um, I never really was uh, a cartoonist. I would never deem myself a cartoonist. And then mm -hmm. when I got to medical school, I was doing it in post-bac as well, but more so in medical school. I found that I was like very scared to learn the way that I knew would be best for me by drawing because you know now I'm in the big leagues now I'm in medical school I felt like I got in you know through the skin of my teeth through a back door and I've been given this great gift I need to kind of cave into traditional learning styles and at that time it seemed like most of my peers would take essentially condense a full lecture of information into a very concise you know typed up outline that would then be essentially memorized and regurgitated that's essentially what everyone was doing and so I decided to kind of follow suit and so I was doing that and you know it went fine I was doing decently but it was arduous it was boring it wasn't sticky it wasn't retaining in my brain and it was kind of more of a uh, thing to get through and I, I didn't enjoy it um, but then every now and again I found myself doodling while I was studying on the margins of my page and I would make a you know a silly cartoon or you know my mind would wander and I would, I would draw something related to the material and I would take these tests and <laughs> I would get questions right because not of what I read and retained because I made some stupid joke cartoon on the side and that popped into my head you know so that's when I kind of made those connections and said you know, maybe I should you know really start using this a little bit more to my benefit and you know on the other end of it I was becoming a little bit depressed and isolated you spend all these hours in the library by yourself and um, it's pretty miserable and I said like my mental health is not worth me honoring classes I'd rather buy a sketchbook use that sketchbook to take my notes enjoy the process as much as I can even if it means getting a few points less on a test so I did that but instead I ended up getting a few points more and I started honoring all my classes because I was drawing and I was learning in a way that was more native to myself and it was also more enjoyable and fun so it really kind of worked out for me in that respect that's what's up man interestingly enough most of the following that we've gotten so far on anchor has been largely non-medical people so which was kind of our goal you know if we had one in the beginning just as far as exposing the realness and rawness behind medicine and healthcare to people that are not in medicine mm -hmm. but like kind of packaging a lot of that information that's really important for you know not only lifestyle choices but also just awareness 
parents about all of these things that are happening to ourselves and our loved ones. And, you know, you're really transparent and open in a lot of the cartoons that I've seen on your Instagram page. And as you've, you know, really been gaining a lot of popularity on social media, do you ever worry about your patients finding your page and knowing your vulnerabilities in the context of medicine and healthcare that you're so open about? Or are you like, I wish a motherfucker would find my page kind of thing? <laughs> Um, you know, it's funny. I had a few moments of concern with that. I mean, it's such a weird thing to have. So uh, this Instagram stuff was so non premeditated. Um, it's been it's been a blessing. And I'm like, obviously very honored and happy to have this opportunity with it. It's like a platform for me. But at the same time, yeah, you're right. Like it creates these little kind of um, pockets of concern. And one kind of lesson that I've learned with this is that when you have a following of a certain number, it's impossible to post or say anything that won't offend someone um, mm -hmm. or won't bother someone. And if you get too caught up in that, which I have and still do to some degree about, you know, worrying about hurting someone's feelings or offending someone, you'll essentially have nothing and no content to create because you could say something as benign as peanut butter and jelly is delicious and there will be someone. How dare you? How <laughs> yeah. dare you? I'm allergic to peanuts or like beer, <laughs> you know, and it's like, right, okay, right. like, you know, I, I would hope that, you know, I think people stop seeing you as a human being and they just see you as this kind of mouthpiece and making all these things. And I, I've definitely posted and said some controversial things, I'm sure. But now that I'm actually a physician and I'm an intern and I'm taking care of people, I, I am a little bit more careful about what I say and what I post. But I also think that there's something to be said about being a human being and I think doctors are human beings and I think patients um, can really appreciate when you're a human being. You know, I also don't think that the majority of the people that I take care of are, maybe I'm naive, maybe they are, but I don't think they're going online and trying to find my social media and, and see those types of things. But, I, you know, now that you mention it, if I think about if by chance someone were to, I think that they would see me in a better light than being concerned about the fact that I have insecurities and hangups about some of right. my gaps in medical knowledge. And, and I hope that that comes through. And I hope that it, uh, what also comes through is that this is a way for me to vent and learn and express that I'm mature enough to know when there is a deficiency, I would never put my patient at harm. I would go get help, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's so perfect, man. I, uh, I love that answer. And speaking of having mostly an audience that's kind of not familiar with the culture of medical education and graduate medical education. Frank Netter is obviously like an iconic name in the medical training because basically all of the anatomy books, especially me, like I haven't gone through surgical residency too, his pictures have basically taught me a good portion of, of medicine as so many people can relate. So I think you know where I'm going with this yeah. because of the resemblance. How often do you get that? And what does that kind of mean to you? just as far as people that may or may not have had an influence on you. So yeah, it's uncanny for sure. There's actually like a lot of strange overlap in his background too. I think he was born and raised in a similar neighborhood um, on the Upper West Side. I think he took some classes at the Art Students League on, on West 57th Street, which I've done in the summers as well without having known. He trained at NYU, uh, which is where I'm at now. Whoa. I mean, there's some weird, there's some weird overlap, but never would I ever dare compare myself to the great Frank Nader. This guy is, incredible and you know I know that you know but those who haven't seen his, his anatomy atlases I mean the guy is incredible he's, he's not only in the, med 
amazing surgeon, but he's a true Michelangelo of art and medicine. So I am extremely humbled and, and find that to be probably the highest of compliments when people try to compare me. But I think the main comparison happens to be with our names and less so with our art. Right. I would love to one day be at his skill level. That being said, you know, he painted mostly in watercolor and gouache and acrylic and so on. And I'm, I tend to stay away from the, the painting and do more of the illustration and drawing. Mm -hmm. So the styles, the styles are different, but nonetheless, I think there is a huge inspiration that I draw from him. There's nothing that's quite as frightening as a blank piece of paper in front of you, and you know you've got to put a picture on it. And you can sit there and look at it all day long and puzzle, how should I begin? Where should I begin? What should I do about this? And you'll never get a picture done. You must begin. You must make some strokes. You may throw it away later, but you must begin to paint. If I could ever elevate to, to his status one day, then that would be the dream and the goal. Yeah, that's so awesome, man. It's like the medical art version of like Tupac Baby. and Kendrick Lamar is like what I'm thinking about now. It's like, it's like what Kendrick must have felt like the first time someone was like, man, is this like Tupac reincarnated? So uh, that's so cool, man. Um, I guess like on that topic of hip hop and rap, who's your favorite rapper and or rap song of all time? Oh God. Oh man, that's a tough one. So I, yeah. I'm a, you know, I, I'm, I'm 32 years old. So I grew up, you know, the nineties when hip hip hop and rap was like really good. Um, mm -hmm. I was a real big hip hop head growing up. So I, I have, I don't know if I could pick a favorite song. Obviously I'm being from New York, I'm a Biggie guy. Oh, so I love okay. Biggie, huge fan, pretty much anything and everything he's ever done. Baby, baby. Good answer, good answer. Whenever I need to get hyped up, I always put on Gimme the Loot. That's a, that's a favorite. Yes, okay. But um, I also like some of the more, not necessarily underground, but like less known. So like uh, Gangstar was a big group. I yeah. I love Tribe Called Quest. That kind of stuff. Mob Deep, of course. Yeah. Great. And there's a lot. There's a lot. Like some old school DMX. Yeah. Uh, yeah, stuff. Some DJ Clue. You know, uh -huh. pretty much anything from the 90s hip hop wise. I dug it. Um, these days, I don't know. I listen to, I've been listening to a lot more alternative stuff. Um, mm -hmm. I love the strokes. The shins. That kind of stuff but yeah i don't know i, I feel like um i've kind of fallen off in terms of the music game like i listen to a lot of whatever's on pandora or uh sure so I, don't, yeah. I don't even know what i'm listening to anymore but yeah yeah but. yeah <laughs> what about um, you what's what's your favorite it's so funny because like as, as you're like rattling off all of that iconic east coast hip-hop i'm just like this guy is just acing the medicine remixed hip-hop iq that's <laughs> but um i'm also very much a fan of that era of hip-hop jay-z i would have to say oh, sure. uh, up there for me and um, Eminem, obviously. I'm thinking of like my hip hop Mount Rushmore, I guess. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. Um, those two are definitely on there. Biggie's on there. We got to put Nas in there for yeah, talking. Yeah. Maybe yeah. some Wu Tang Clan. Dude, I know. It's like that. That's why I'm just like, this Mount Rushmore is going to take a form of its own. Maybe that, that could be something that you work on. Uh, <laughs> and, but oh, like speaking of that, because you went to Jefferson in Philly, obviously. Philly, no. My wife, she did her OBGYN residency in South Jersey through Rowan University. Oh, sure. So we were we were in Philly a lot. And I didn't really know Philly as much until we started 
dating and just the street art slash mural scene in Philly yeah. was to the point where it was like upsetting to me how many people weren't just constantly like marveling at these like works of art. They're just like on their phones and I'm just like, does anybody see what's going on here? Like, this is, you're the perfect person to ask as far as Philly street art slash mural scene versus New York graffiti and street art scene. Oh my God, yeah, Philly is a really great town. I have to admit, and I feel really bad about it when I first moved to Philly, I was like kind of bummed. I was like, oh, you know, like where's the rest of the city? Like, why is everything closed too? And like, what's going on? But then it grew on me so much. Like the food culture there, the art culture there, the medicine culture there, the people are awesome. It's a really great town and I love it there. But you're right. So when I was walking around there, I was like, holy shit, this place is what's up. The mural scene there is amazing. So there's a whole backstory to that mural scene. And basically, it's a much more organized, kind of goal-directed art movement in Philly. It was trying to clean up the streets because Philly was a rough town. Couple of guys who were up to no good started making trouble in my neighborhood. Yeah, it still is, but it's much better than it was. And it, it was started, I'm blanking on her name and I feel awful that I don't recall it, but it was started with the goal of bringing folks who were convicted of crimes and you know doing drugs and all these things and having them help make their communities more beautiful, but they also would help paint them. So they took part in it and there was like a, a stakeholding aspect to it. And it's kind of like the broken window theory. Like if you clean up your neighborhood and you make this beautiful mural, you're going to hopefully have less crime and all this stuff. Right. And um, the murals are just unbelievable and they're beautiful and Philly's really proud of them. They have this tour where you can like a walking tour and there's all this stuff. So for me, actually, when I, when I had my interview at Jefferson, I'll never forget walking along Walnut Street and like seeing all the murals and seeing all the buildings and everything. I was like, I need to be here. Like I like this is this is a perfect like it needed to happen. And thank God that it did. But um, in New York, the graffiti and street art scene is a lot more organic and unorganized and there's a little bit more of a uh, like an ego to it and people kind of put up you know their tags and their stuff and I love it as I love the graffiti scene too but it's a very different kind of subculture yeah um, whereas Philly kind of elevated it to more of a uh, kind of high art um, right, organized right. scene yeah and I guess speaking of that I'm pretty sure it's somebody that you put me on to Appleton Pictures yeah uh, talk to me about that and for the people that listening that have no idea how that meeting came about and what Appleton Pictures is. And oh my God, this guy's the yeah. man. So I, um, I'll never forget. I was roaming around Brooklyn. I don't know. I think I was. I think I was in post back at the time. So this was years ago, and I was with my my boys, and we were hanging out. We we're taking a walk, and I see this wheat pasting. A wheat pasting is essentially like um, a print that gets kind of paper mache up on the wall instead of it being graffitied on. It's kind of like pasted on. And it was a huge insulin vial and a glucometer. Wow. I was like, what? There's diabetes street art. This is amazing. So I, I snapped a picture of it. I loved it. And I had no idea who put it up there or anything. And then I, I started seeing more of them around town. And um, I came across a blog that was talking about this diabetes street art. And I finally found the, the guy who was Appleton Pictures. And I listened to a couple of interviews with him. And I started uh, kind of following his stuff. And I was such a fan of his work. So he's, he's a fine artist. He, he's a photographer, an artist. He makes sculptures and all these things, but he's also this guy who is, has had type 1 diabetes his whole life and he has hoarded all of his used insulins and syringes and everything that you could imagine. And he's taken photos and made all the street art as well as um, sculptures and, and beautiful pieces. And he shows his work in galleries, but he also is very big in the street art world. And his, his whole mission is to kind of expose, um, well, obviously for advocacy and awareness of type 1 diabetes. <laughs> 
but he, you know, he has a, a vendetta against the, the big pharma and all the things that are going on and how our lives are controlled by insulin and glucometers and so on. And we don't have control over that and money and all these things. And it's a really wonderful message and it's so well done and his stuff is so cool. So I, uh, I reached out to him and I was like, you know, he lets me know when he's having, having shows and stuff. So I, I finally had a chance to meet the guy and he's just like cool as hell. I mean, that, that sounds so dope. I could only imagine what you must have felt like in that moment where you're just seeing this wheat paste thing you said that yeah so it's not a stencil it's a, that it's a paper mache thing this is my understanding yeah. and, and yeah. I, I could be i could be off on some of the details but my understanding is he'll take a photo of the insulin or the or the glucometer or whatever it may be he'll mess with it either on photoshop or by hand or print it out and then by hand and mess with it he'll scan it back in and then he'll make a huge print on a piece of paper he'll uh -huh. cut out the image and then he'll take um i think it's called wheat pasting because it's actually a mixture of like water and some sort of like glue and like wheat base he'll, Got it. and he'll use a paintbrush and he'll paint that up on the wall that's so dope man is it mostly in brooklyn it's all over it's uh it's all over manhattan now it's brooklyn okay. yeah i'm definitely gonna have to do a little walking tour for our like social media page or you know just for my own curiosity uh one of these days um, yeah man but yeah i'm pretty sure you put me on him i think that's so dope man and any, anytime i see anything like that it's just you know automatic i'm just like that medicine remix it's just yes. like it, it become this like game for me to like find that in so much of your work and Dr. Ko's work, which uh, I want to talk about that too, because as I mentioned, she is by far our most listened to episode so far. I mean, she just dropped just straight heat for like a straight hour, much like you're doing right now. Uh -huh. But how did that meeting come about? How did you guys like know of each other? And is there potentially like a Natter and Co collabo in the works? <laughs> that would be awesome. I sadly, I actually have not met her in person yet, but we both okay. been um, admirers from afar like I her stuff is she's she's truly incredible like she I mean she's a brain surgeon and a classically yeah, yeah. trained artist and ah. she's just like amazing um yeah so she's a huge inspiration I, you know it's a good question how did um I, I think I came across a New York Times article about her a long time ago okay. so I, I kind of knew of her but it wasn't until I don't, honestly don't even know how I came across her Instagram but she had reached out to me when I first started selling some of my art and I had a, a piece a, a brain piece that she liked and so I, I sold it to her and I shipped it over to her and she sent me back this just like really sweet note and she was like really interested in like uh, collaborating and talking more and, and kind of like mentoring me in some ways so we, we've kind of uh, struck up a relationship in that respect um, she was really sweet and just recently had uh, she has her own podcast and she actually had me on yeah so that oh, was that's awesome yeah that was awesome and the way i look at your art is that you use it when you reach a difficult passage but she's she's a boss like she oh. being i think being female in surgery is really tough oh yeah um it's unfortunate that that's still kind of the case but i think in neurosurgery especially it's probably even more so like an old man's club but yeah. um that aside like neurosurgery residency just seems like truly hellacious so like getting through that alone i think is a, a feat but then getting through that and still maintaining this like creativity and this artistic side and this like fun like she's just great she just she gets it and she she stays with it she gets it yeah exactly 100 percent. we had such an awesome conversation i had a blast talking to her
it's just so interesting like both of you guys are such inspirations and how do you stay like so consistent posting on social media and creating everything from doodles to your cartoons to like self portraits made out of blood glucose strips damn son where'd you find this well, you gotta get back to that too but like do you have any specific like routines or hacks that you can share for aspiring medical creators i honestly man i wish i did i wish i did yeah. i'd share them with myself first honestly it's this it's just you're it's just, just living and capturing your yeah life. it just kind of it just yeah. kind of comes it's really organic yeah. i mean i think as you know obviously like residency is tough and the time that you Brutal. have yourself is so minimal but yeah. i kind of feel like a lot of my drawings illustrations and things tend to be just an extension <laughs> of what like i would do normally and it's kind of like when i have a day off there's a handful of things i need to get done i need to do my laundry i need to get my groceries i need to get my, my place together there's a handful right. of things i need to do to unwind and i think for some people that might be you know running you know 10 miles or some people that might be going out for drinks and so on and you know i'd like to do all those things but some of the things i need to do is i need to sometimes sit in the coffee shop all day and draw and drink coffee and chill and like that for me is how i kind of unwind and so it just so happens that that works in terms of being able to post and stuff but i try not to post just to post or for an audience major killer yeah i do it for myself and it's funny because like i'll post something that i think is like well illustrated or well drawn or something I think is clever or funny or whatever. And it, it'll do not very well in terms of, you know, engagement and people liking it and these types of things. And the stuff that I think is kind of silly or stupid or one-off or something that I would have otherwise thrown away in the trash and not even thought to post, that's the thing that, you know, people seem to love. And so there seems to be no kind of algorithm to, you know, to figure this stuff out. Yeah. No, I mean, you're so organic and native to it. I mean, like, speaking of that, like, when did you, like, join Instagram, for example? I mean, is it fair to say that that's your most favorite uh, platform or the one that you spend most of your time on? Yeah, definitely, definitely. It's, it's funny. I mean, that's, I actually, I had a vendetta against any other social media outside of Facebook because in my mind, I thought it was more of a headache because you now, you have Twitter and you have Instagram and to me, it's like, well, Twitter, you write stuff and Instagram, you right. post pictures, but Facebook has that already. It's like, it's two in one. Like, why do I waste time? Yeah. Doing, like, I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want that headache. But, um, you know, friends who were in med school with me and some people who I met in Philly when I was in uh, my first uh, year said that, you know, the, the platform of Instagram would be great to put my stuff on because it's all visual based. And I thought to myself, wait a minute, what if I was able to catalog? Because at the time I was drawing on scraps of paper and different mm -hmm. sketchbooks. And I thought if I could catalog it and my naive self with Instagram thought that when you were to hashtag things that you could search your own hashtags. I didn't realize it was a conglomerate of all the hashtags. So right. I thought if I were to draw something relevant to cardiac physiology and I wrote, you know, cardiology, hashtag cardiology, I thought then studying for step one, I could just then click my hashtag and see all my notes. Uh. Little did I know, <laughs> that's not at all how it worked out. And so I was basically using Instagram for myself as a study aid for step one. And then I realized that my colleagues started getting some questions right and they come up to me after a test and be like, oh, that, you know, your drawing got me a point or two. And yeah! I was like, oh, that's awesome. Like that makes me feel really good. So I kept doing it, I kept doing it, I kept doing it. And then Buzzfeed did a, wanted to do a piece about people like grad students who drew or doodled. And I was really fortunate, and that, that's really where things took off. And so I was really fortunate to have that opportunity. And so I had maybe a couple hundred followers, and then that BuzzFeed post went live, and, and what, I got 10,000 overnight. It was crazy. Bring us into that moment, like when, when that happened. Did it affect you at all, or were you just like, oh, that's interesting? Or were you like, holy shit, like I'm, I'm internet famous, I've arrived. We the best.
no, so not, yeah. not at all. So I, I want to say yeah. first and foremost, like never have I ever wanted or meant or tried. Like I was not anticipating nor trying to do anything of the sort. Talk to him. And nor would I ever consider myself Instagram famous by any means. I mean, to me, there's it like smacks with pretension. Yeah. There's yeah, the, and there's 100%. just like there's just like a, an element too when you see some of these folks. Like um, there are some folks that you know they they just take pictures of you know their abs or they're just like really good looking. Yeah. And, they, and like I just don't like getting lumped into like that crowd so much. You know. So right. I mean, there's so many different types of popular account, right? I mean, I guess having a really good six pack, I guess is also an achievement to some level, but sure, sure. Uh, I, t I totally understand what you're saying, which is why, I mean, just how you're answering the question too is 100% why I follow you, why we follow you, you know, that real recognized, real algorithm, if there's such a thing of like, you know, that's somebody who's being real with himself and like doing it for the right reasons. I think it's fairly easy to sniff out the bullshit artist versus someone who's genuinely doing it for the thing itself, yeah. which is clearly what you were doing and why I think you've been successful because it's about the journey and not some end goal of followers or something like that. So I applaud you. You're doing an awesome thing and you're doing so much good also with the artwork and you were mentioning like selling some of your artwork on Instagram. Can you talk about that a little bit as far as, you know, when you started doing that, when you realized that you could do that or that there was like an interest out there? Sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And thank you, by the way, you're, you're very flattering and I appreciate it. It's very sweet. Um, so I, as you know, medical school is not cheap and being a resident, you don't make very much money. So I, I was very fortunate that I was offered um, one of the coffee shops in Philly that I frequented and would draw a lot at. They would hang artwork on the wall and I became friendly with some of the baristas there and they actually offered for me to put up some of my work to sell. So I made a couple of prints. I put up some, mostly anatomy stuff. So I put some stuff up around you know, the coffee shop and <laughs> sadly, I think very few, if any of them sold. So mm -hmm. I decided, well, you know, I have all these pieces now and they're all free and like I, I don't want to keep them you know I don't have any space in my apartment why don't I just see if anyone on Instagram is interested so I went and I kind of put them up for sale on Instagram and they went like immediately like hot immediately, immediately, immediately and I was so shocked at how quickly they went and how in demand that some of these pieces were so I said this is fantastic I should you know maybe look into making a little bit of change in the side here so the problem was for me it's extremely time intensive to ship and package and sell and wrap and all these right. things. So um, I kind of forgot about it and left it alone. And then I was approached by um, this woman, Alex Greenberg, who has a non-for-profit company. Initially, it was called Portraits for Good, uh, mm -hmm. but she's since rebranded and now it's called Art Sugar. Oh, okay. And um, her mission is basically with every piece that she sells, a portion goes to a, a charity Bless up. Um, of the choice of either the artist or the buyer. So I, I said, like, I'd love to do something with you. Actually, she approached me and I said, I'd love to do something with you with uh, the Juvenile Diabetes Research Center which obviously I'm, you know, passionate about. So, you know, since then I've been making prints of most of my work that's either on Instagram or commission work and I've been selling through her and it's been great. That's phenomenal, man. If someone were to make you an offer that you could make as much or more money doing art full time as compared to like being a physician and endocrinologist, would you, do, is that something you would even consider or is it like a definite no? <laughs> 
<laughs> you can't ask me that when I'm in the CCU month as an intern. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. We should do several of these interviews. We should just do like a longitudinal study of like what's the answer. Your answer would be to this question. I think that would make for an interesting like case control or whatever. Fucking... Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, look, here's here's the deal. Like, I won't lie that I think when you're a 20 something year old and everyone tells you this is a really rough road and like maybe you should reconsider and all these things. Don't do it. Reconsider. Read some litter. Sure on the subject. You sure? <laughs> Uh, that was, I was very, I was like, no, everything, I'm, no matter what, I'm going to make it through and I'm going to make it through. You know, I was bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, but while that's kind of washed off a little bit, and I'm still very much a little bit disillusioned with some of medicine. Yeah. There are still little hidden gems throughout this really rough, long journey that remind me why I'm doing this and make it very clear that this is something that is not so much what I want to do, but what I need to be doing. And it's more of a calling. No, I want to, I, I want to keep going. I, you know, I complain a lot. God damn, God damn. My friends know this. My co-interns know this. I, you know, I'm tired all the time. I, I constantly make jokes about how maybe I should just quit and go live on a beach and sell hot dogs and, you know, but it's an amazing thing. I'm sure more so for you as a surgeon, when you have someone who is so sick and is in need and you're able to make a difference yeah. and, and do these things. It's amazing. It really is. And I mean, if, if I'm being very honest, I think my goal would be to find a balance so that I can have both where I can work clinically however many days a week and then also have my art on the side and maybe use it for education or for books or for whatever it may be. So that, that would be ideal. Yeah. yeah, I think you basically summarized the mission statement of Medicine Remix, what this project has meant to me and to us. So that's awesome, man. Yeah, again, another reason why we vibe with your stuff so much. Need it. I think, I want to say, is there a cartoonist for either the New Yorker or um, yes. one of those? Yeah, you know who I'm talking about. Yeah, ben, like ben, ben Schwartz. Ben Schwartz. Yeah. yeah, yeah. My name is Benjamin Schwartz. Uh, I am a cartoonist for The New Yorker. I am also an MD and I work with Columbia University and I teach medical students how to tell stories through art. So what, he finished medical school or what, what, what was his yeah. deal? Oh, his story is incredible. I'm, I'm so glad that you know about him. Yeah, so he's, in some ways, I, I do have these fantasies of kind of his story because a lot of things that he has said very much echo things that I think about and or have said as well. He went to Columbia Medical School. His father, I believe, was a cardiologist. He went to Columbia Medical School and then he found himself in Columbia as an intern in internal medicine. And he always loved to draw and he would doodle and make cartoons. And he found himself making a lot of cartoons during intern year. And I think he had this the quote was something along the lines of, you know, every year you're in medical school and then intern year and residency and so on. It's so bad, but the goalposts keep getting pushed further away. So initially it's like, oh, just get through post back and get into medical school in my case. And and then everything will be a little bit better and then like you've reached your goal. But then you get into medical school and it's like, well, now you need to honor this and the next year will be better and then next year comes and next year sucks and it keeps getting pushed back and pushed back. Oh. So he was finally like, no, <laughs> like I'm done pushing this back. And he's super talented and was fortunate enough to land a gig at The New Yorker and he has a full-time gig making cartoons for The New Yorker, which is amazing. And a lot of his cartoons actually have a, a medical theme. Not a lot, but many of them have a lot of medical themes to them, which is great. But um, yeah. yeah, I mean, there's something to be said about that. And you know, if you ask me, 
many years ago when I was a postback, I'd say like, this guy is a trained physician. Like what a, what a loss to the medical world. He could be helping saving lives. But no, I think he's helping in so many other ways, making people laugh and think and he's happy. And I think that has a lot to, to say for it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that's part of what Medicine Remix means to us. And I, I feel like we keep drawing, you know, more and more meanings out of what that means to us. But just this idea of like the traditional forms of medicine of either cutting somebody open or giving them a pill. There are these other kind of underground, not so spoken about medications like arts or hearing something motivational or reading some powerful words or all these different things that create visceral neurochemical changes in us, whether it's seeing the, the new Mike Natter cartoon that relates to something that I'm going through, or I should say, is it Captain Langerhans? Yeah. It, talk about how that came about, by the way. Well, first of all, thank you. And I totally, yeah. I totally agree. I can't express that enough because I think unfortunately in medicine, we become so tunnel visioned and that we have to treat. There's a problem here. Let's give them this medication. Let's intervene. Let's do this scan. And I, I, sometimes I feel like we do more harm than good in medicine. And there's something to be said about talking to the patient or having them draw or like there are other things. We as Western trained doctors, we don't necessarily give it the time of day and it's unfortunate, you know, but um, so we yeah, Captain Langerhans. So I would go out on a limb and say Captain Langerhans is the reason I got into medical school. Um, but I was in postback. I finally found a little bit of time to do a project that I had been basically putting off for years. I always wanted to create a comic book. It's I grew up with comic books. I was a big fan of, you know, Marvel and Spider-Man and all that stuff. But I also really appreciated the more like uh, traditional graphic novels like Mouse by uh, mm -hmm. Art Spiegelman. And, and I, I was always amazed at how there's something very powerful about telling a story in this chronological art form. Yes, sir. So anyway, I, I always wanted to make a comic book about a diabetic superhero that would kind of help explain the path of physiology to kids who are diagnosed. And I came up with Captain Langerhans. And for those who aren't familiar with Langerhans, the islet cells of Langerhans are cells in the pancreas that produce insulin. So I made this comic book and I was in the middle of making it when I met the Dean of Admissions at Jefferson at a med school fair at Columbia where I did my post back. And she told me, you know, your numbers are a little low, um, but what else are you doing? You know, what else do you have going on? And I was like, oh, well, you know, I'm making this comic book. I kind of said it as an aside, not thinking anyone really cares so much about it. And she yeah. really latched onto it and she loved it. And I would kind of send her email updates with you know, illustrations and stuff and she ate it up. And I actually ended up dedicating that book to her in addition to my family because I'm pretty sure she saw something in me because of the way I saw the world, the way I wanted to be a doctor. And I think that's kind of what allowed me to, to kind of get in. That's awesome, man. Would you say, uh, I mean, she was clearly a influence in your medical career so far. Are there other people that you would consider your biggest influences on your on your journey so far? I split them into buckets. So like, there's a lot of people that were, you know, haters, like the naysayers, the, yeah. the MCAT tutors, the deans of admissions, the yeah. the deans at my own post-bac, you know, like a lot of these folks said, cut your losses, or they said apply overseas or whatever it may be. And I think that kind of motivated me just as much as the people that were in my corner but my two best friends uh josh and david uh, who i've known since i was six years old they've always been the most vocal positive supporters of my life and then obviously my mom my dad and my sister have always been really supportive so i was i've been very fortunate that i have a really good i have a really good group of people behind me that's phenomenal man you know getting that diagnosis of type 1 diabetes at nine years old i can imagine what that must 
have done to you just from like a maturity level going through something like so real can you talk a little bit about what that was like growing up with that and also kind of what your day-to-day -day is now as a resident physician with criminal hours that, that you're working like and what that's like with type 1 diabetes the journey from then to now sure yeah yeah absolutely so i always like to say that um you know, being diagnosed with diabetes is a very difficult thing in that it's a lifestyle disease. Uh, you have to change your lifestyle entirely. You have to start taking injections. You have to test your blood sugar. You have to watch what you eat. You have to exercise. You have to be very regimented and controlled and routine. And in some ways, that's not a very difficult thing to do as a child because your life as a child is kind of already dictated to you. Slow down. Come down here, sit down, put that down. You wake up when you're told, you go to school when you're told, you wear what you're told, you eat what you're told. So now for me at nine, it's like, okay, so now I'm also, you know, taking insulin shots and pricking my finger. And I was a very kind of easygoing kid. So I, I actually felt like it was much harder on my parents having that diagnosis than, than it was on me as a, as a child. That being said, I mean, Halloween kind of stuff. Everyone that we know is just giving out candy. Those things yeah. kind of sucked in birthday parties. But um, I never really had that kind of rebellious, uh, like, woe was me growing up. But then as I got older, I became a little bit more resentful. Um, I was bitter a little bit. I, I certainly, I always took care of myself. I never kind of stopped taking my insulin or anything like that. I never really lashed out at anyone about it, but it was just annoying. It became an annoyance. But I think it's also a huge, if not main reason why I found medicine and why I found my calling. So it's kind of like a blessing and a curse in some ways, uh -huh. but it also gives me a leg up in that I can, I have this insight into chronic disease that allows me to relate to my patients a little bit. And I think mm -hmm. that's really valuable as well. In terms of being a resident with diabetes, it's it's I think it's really 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 tough but what's made it kind of doable is that the technology has come such a long way so I have a um, what's called a continuous glucose monitor or CGM and what that does is it's gonna continually check my sugar and then it shows me where my numbers are at on my pump and what that allows is when you prick or test your finger on a glucometer it gives you a value so let's say it's hundred you don't know if that's a hundred and going down a hundred and holding steady a hundred and shooting up so that derivative that rate of change is kind of the variable there. With the CGM, you can kind of hedge off highs, you can hedge off lows. So it's been really helpful and it kind of allows me a little bit more flexibility in terms of like the night shift, and, you know, switching from days to nights and stuff like that. Wow. How did the diagnosis initially come about? I think you probably, yeah, you were making memories at nine. So I'm sure you remember <laughs> that pretty vividly. Yeah, it was, it was pretty traumatic to be honest with you. I was, um, I had, it was uh, two weeks after my ninth birthday. Um, I had just come home from sleepaway camp and I had the very kind of textbook, uh, polydipsia, polyphagia, polyuria. I was waking up numerous times a night to urinate. I was extremely thirsty. I had lost a lot of weight. I was in severe decay and I actually, um, I went and slipped into a coma. Oh God. Um, and I was brought over to Mount Sinai Hospital in New York in the ER. And the last thing I remember, my dad was carrying me into the ER and I remember them putting me down and putting an IV in me and then everything else kind of went black and that was it. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was a rough go. But um, after a couple weeks in the hospital, uh, I got better. They taught me everything I needed to do. What's the most astonishing for me was seeing the, you know, I was I was drawing up like syringes, like huge gauge syringes from insulin vials and injecting myself. And now it's like I have this insulin pump that's essentially, uh, you know, automatized to the point where I just program it. And it's, it's just the disease itself has become much more manageable. That's phenomenal, man. And actually, I just made a connection that I, I did it before when you mentioned the tribe called Quest. When Fife Dog passed away, we did a special on him because I'm sure you know Fife had type 1 diabetes. So like, yeah. just, you know, his, his frustration with it.
Growing up with the circumstances that you grew up in too, and how that kind of plays into everything. But regardless of whether you had an amazing support system, which it sounds like you had, whether you have that or not, how difficult that must be, especially at such a young age. So kudos to you, man. Yeah, big up. And before I forget, that self-portrait that you made out of the blood glucose test strips,、uh, we'll link it up and stuff, so you know our listeners can take a look. A, how does one even do something like that? Yeah. And how did that come about? <laughs> Thanks, man.、Um, also, the funky diabetic tribe called Quest is the shit, and、uh, mm-hmm. Five Dog. It was a big loss to the hip hop community. Yeah. But- Yeah, so I similar to Captain Langerhans. It's like I had this idea to do something with these test strips for years, and I would collect them for periods of time, and then I'd forget about it, and then I collect some more, and then I'd forget about it, and then you know I moved away to Philly. I mean, I've been collecting them for years, but then I would stop and I would forget about it. And I moved away to Philly for school, and I had it some one of those breaks, whatever it was, a spring break or winter break, and I had some free time, and I I was like, you know, I've never really used these strips, and now's the time. I should probably do something with it. So I was trying to figure out. What to do with them? And the thought came to me this idea of like microcosm and macrocosm, and how diabetes is like very much a part of my daily life, but I don't necessarily want to be defined by my diabetes. And while it is an everyday struggle, it's something that I don't want to have to think about on that level. So I wanted to be seen for who I was, but also kind of what I'm made up of, which is you know, these test strips. So I took a few photos in like some drastic light, and then I kind of traced out the shapes, and then I kind of cut the strips up and pasted them, and then. Pattern that would resemble the shapes, and I didn't think it was going to work out, and it actually worked out. I was very happy with it. Yeah, yeah, you should be.、It、turned out amazing. And where is that now?、Uh, so I made a bunch of prints of it, and I was really fortunate that I've made a relationship with this professor at a Canadian、oh. medical university, and she looks into research basically in like the humanities and, and medicine and art and so on. And she was writing a bunch of things, and she really took a liking to that piece, and she bought a print of it, and it's now hanging. In the Ottawa Diabetes Clinic in Canada, there. That's so cool, man. I was so stoked about that.、And、I feel like you probably have a lot of cool moments like that, like artwork that you've created that has brought such good into wherever it's being housed now. Like any of those pieces, are there other ones that come to mind as far as things that were really meaningful to you after you saw like the response from the person that bought it or acquired it at some point? Sure. I mean, first of all, like as an artist, as as someone who never identified. As as an actual real artist until recently, I feel like anyone who's willing to pay money for my work and wants my work on their wall is like truly. Like I can't even put words to it. It's extremely, extremely nice and flattering. It makes me feel really good that people appreciate what I'm making, and you know, it also feels kind of weird. And I feel kind of fraudulent in some ways because I think to myself, like, you know, I like to draw, and like, never would I think someone would want something that I created on their wall. Like, why would they think there's value in what I made? You know, I have friends who I went to art school with who are super talented, whose stuff you know should be being put on someone's wall. Like, my stuff doesn't belong up there, but it's really flattering. It makes me feel really good.、Um, 
there's a couple of things that kind of come to mind that have been some really like paramount moments that will kind of always make me smile. Um, the library director at Jefferson, where I went to medical school, he wanted to, Jefferson has like a very rich history. It's been around for um, a long, long time. And they have a lot of past alumni who've done things and are up in the walls there. And he wanted to make a little bit of a wall of some of my art and, and put a little bio of me up there. So it felt great that the one medical school that kind of took the chance on me, I now kind of feel like I left a little bit of myself back there, which is really great. That's some poetic justice go, shit, go, go, man, go. to yeah. reference Kendrick again. That's yeah. amazing. Thanks, man. I guess the last question, we'll wrap up with this. I want to be mindful of your time. Being a, a New York City kid, now back to his old stomping grounds to where it all began. I think New York City is one of those places where I don't know if this is as relevant anymore because I feel like people are on their phones, barely looking at the roads, let alone billboards. But if you could design a billboard and like put anything on it, whether it was about type one diabetes awareness or pursuing your dreams or saying fuck the haters or whatever it is, uh, what would you put on that billboard? Oh man, that's a great question. Um, I would love to just have a huge public space to put some stuff up there, but that's that's a daunting thing. You know, for I think for anyone who's creative when they sit in front of a blank canvas or a blank piece of paper, that can sometimes be like some of the most intimidating things to, to do. But I think for me, I would want to reach the most people and to reach the most people, I think the message would have to be the simplest. And I think the simplest message would be everyone is struggling to succeed and go after their dreams and do something big. And I think it would have to be something along that where um, yeah. kind of a, a fuck the haters, don't listen to what other people say, but chase your dreams. You know, I'll get messages on Instagram now and again from kids who were told that you're not smart enough or your grades aren't good enough. Yeah. And I always tell them like, listen, it doesn't matter what someone says to you, even if the odds are stacked against you, you pursue your dreams. And then if they start to kind of look like they're not going to work out, other windows of opportunity kind of open up in that pursuit and you'll end up where you're supposed to be. And I was fortunate that I ended up where I'm at, but if I didn't end up this, then maybe I would have been a DO or then maybe I would have gone overseas or maybe I would have done something totally different, but it would yeah. have been what was meant to be. And so I think something along those lines would be most poetic. I love it. I love that, man. I think that's a great place to end. Again, truly appreciate your time, man. I know your time especially is very valuable and limited now. So to spend an hour chopping it up with Medicine Remix, appreciate you doing this. I think this is going to be another all-time episode and we'll definitely connect on Instagram. I think our listeners are going to love this and looking forward to, to talking to you again, man. I would love to do a round two. Dude, absolutely. Listen, Rich, I, I really, I can't tell you how much I appreciate this. It's been an honor, but it's also just nice to like meet other people in medicine that are also kind of like-minded and get it and you definitely get it and i'm really honored to be part of this 100 percent, man thank you so much again and uh have a great weekend hopefully uh, you're not working but if you are good luck <laughs> i'm working <laughs> yeah of course of course you are <laughs> all right bud be good all right all right brother peace the documentary the documentary who's the doc that he told you to go see <laughs> Podcastville. Hope you enjoyed this installment of Documentaries on Medicine Remixed. A big, big, big shout out and thank you to Dr. Mike Natter for doing this interview. I know I learned a lot, so hopefully you got a lot of value and inspiration from him as well to get after your dreams. 
He was really a breath of fresh air to talk to and such a humble dude. So do yourself a favor and follow him on social media at Mike.Natter on Instagram or at Mike underscore Natter on Twitter. We'll have all the links to his social media in the show notes. This episode was edited and mixed by yours truly, Reach the MCMD. This episode featured original production from up-and-coming hip-hop producer JMKM from the Productive Culture crew. Big ups to him for blessing us with so many fire beats on this episode. You'll definitely hear us playing more of his shit on the show. Uh-huh. Check out the SoundCloud and Spotify links for JMKM and Productive Culture in the podcast show notes to listen to more dope music by them. Thanks to all of you for listening and supporting us. As always, leave us a voice message on Anchor to ask a question or show us love. Find us on social media if you haven't already. And pretty please with sugar on top, consider leaving us a review on iTunes to spread love the podcast way. We appreciate you guys and gals. Until next time, you're listening to the one and only Medicine Remixed.